consider buying your processed oboe and bassoon cane from those friendly folks over at Barton Cane. Processed with care and precision for your everyday reed-making needs. Take the pain and injury out of reed-making by letting Barton Cane do the hard, repetitive, boring stuff. Free up time for practicing, happy hours, hikes, baking, and spending time with friends and family. Barton Cane, here for you. Visit www.bartoncane.com. Specializing in the finest assortment of oboes, clarinets, bassoons, and their accessories, RDG Woodwinds serves musicians around the world. Their employees are all professional musicians who have a deep knowledge of the products that they sell. RDG's repair shop has an international reputation with a combined 100 plus years of service among the five repair technicians. Plain and simple, RDG provides excellent products and fabulous customer service. Visit them at rdgwoodwinds.com. They look forward to working with you. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish, a podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. Six years. Can you believe it? I feel like I'm celebrating six years with my spouse. (laughs) Which means that over six years ago, we would have already like conceived of Double Read Dish and we're like working behind the scenes to. Are we parents? Launch it. Is Double Read Dish our offspring? Maybe. <laughs> but we did re- metaphorically recently give birth to a big project. Oh my goodness. I'm so excited about Don't that. Don't worry, listeners, the birth metaphors are going to come to an end. We- <laughs> that will not continue. <laughs> well, yes, we have recently brought into this world our album, All Are Welcome New Works for the Oboe and Bassoon. Uh, we recorded the works that were um, commissioned through the Double Read Dish Commission Consortium. And uh, this is our love letter to all of you. This is our um, just big kiss to all of the people who joined the consortium. Yeah, it's uh, it's super cool to see it all come to fruition. And it's interesting because I recently had a a solo album come out too. Like in the same week. In the same week. Um, (laughs) And if I could get on my soapbox for just like really quickly, it was interesting to watch those two processes. Um, I was kind of going through the process with both albums at the same time, right? And I'm, of course, incredibly grateful for my job, incredibly grateful for the professional development support that I have through my position, grants, all of those things are wonderful. I would never look a gift horse in the mouth. But when I look at the timeline of that project and how much like red tape and this has to get approved, that has to get approved, you have to go through this, then you have to go through that versus our project, which was grassroots, self-funded, 
Uh, we paid for every single aspect of it. We own every single aspect of it. I mean, the label notwithstanding, but it was able to just go so quickly because we were in control of it all. And so not in every scenario will you be able to do that. Like that's a privilege that not every project will be able to have, but it to me was just kind of a really nice reminder of the importance of like owning your own stuff and being independent of institutions when and where you can and cultivating a side hustle or a primary hustle and just like owning your work and that type of thing. So that was really cool to see us as, albeit a small business, a woman of color owned small business be completely in charge of the pace and finances of our own project. And yeah, it was very gratifying. It made this particular experience gratifying in, in ways that the other one wasn't. Well, we recorded in September and it's released in November. Yeah. That's bananas fast. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, you know, everything that you just said times a million um, and, you know, speaking of owning your own work, I mean, that is something that is especially important to you and part of your own personal artistic mission statement as a composer, mm-hmm. um, owning your own piece and self-publishing. Yeah. And I've had people who don't quite understand that. Um, and there's a lot culturally and historically that goes into that decision that I don't have to get into now, but you see it increasingly you know, with composers who are choosing to self-publish and completely own and completely reap the benefits of their own work. And I think Mm -hmm. it's, like I said, it's not something that all of us can do all of the time in every way, for sure. But when and where I have been able to do it, I see the benefits and, you know, appeal of doing it that way, for sure. So this album is available on all streaming platforms. It's also available for purchase. So uh, just go give it a little listen. And now all of you who have joined the consortium have a reference recording for these pieces by Mason Bynes, Connor Chi, Kate Kinskis, and Bryn Solomon. Absolutely. And full disclosure, we do not get the money when you purchase the album. So if you're like, should I stream or should I purchase? Completely up to you. Uh, Feel free to just keep streaming that, baby. Like, you don't got to... We're not going to be like, and please purchase that. We don't get any benefit from that. So, you know, do you, if you want it do on your you phone, on your phone, or do you want to stream it? That's, that's yeah. the real question. How important is our album to airplane mode? Yeah. And, you know, go from there. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> we see no, no proceeds. Pressure. No pressure. <laughs> um. So not only... Do we have a new album out into the world? But it's our six-year podversary. And what is the traditional gift for six years, Galeen? Uh It is iron, which is extremely confusing. <laughs> uh, the internet tells me it's iron or candy, which neither one of us can have anymore (laughs) (laughs) well i texted jackie uh, a couple weeks ago i was like uh the internet says that i should get you iron like do i have to like commission an iron artist to make you like a custom gate like what is this and i said no just send me like leafy greens like spinach and broccoli so i can have my iron (laughs) 
I'm so happy. Like six years ago, we, I mean, we just didn't think this far ahead. It's not that we didn't think that we could get this far. It's just, it. we just didn't <laughs> conceive of this far in the future. Yeah. Like, I feel like the whole thing has just been like, okay, next episode, next yeah. episode. And yeah. then a month becomes a year, becomes a handful of years, becomes six years. And, yeah. and I will say like, to brag on us, we have not missed one first or one fifteenth in the entirety of six years. We have maintained our schedule. I'm knocking on wood. Yeah, I know. I just tempted fate completely. Stop it. <laughs> <laughs> so I pulled up from brides.com. Oh, yes. An article, Iron Anniversary Gifts That Your Significant Other Will Love. And we're not going to go through them all. But one thing I'm noticing that features very prevalently is cast iron. That makes more sense than a custom gate. Yes. Why didn't I go there first? Well, to put a double read spin on it, like, are we aware of any, like, cast iron tools? Like... Is there such thing as a cast iron mandrel or like... Does it need to be seasoned? Reamer. Yeah. Do you need to put it in the oven? Can someone... I know we have listeners who are more like technical engineer minds. Can any of you make Galit and I a cast iron set of reed tools? <laughs> For traveling. Yes. Just to make sure that our bags at the airport weigh over 50 pounds. So we have to pay that fee. <laughs> Is there a cast iron sculpture of an oboe and bassoon somewhere? What about a cast iron bassoon or vocal? How hard would you have to blow to get that vibrating? Vocal. Do you think that's what the person who stuffed sand in the vocal from the last episode was trying to do? (laughs) Vocal art. Oh, a branding iron. Like a cattle brander? Yes. It says for BBQ. But could oh, okay. we brand our reads? Like, I feel like I've seen that. People who have, like, put their logo in. Like, with, with the brand. tiniest sizzle. Yes. Can someone make us a double read dish brand of our logo? And we could put it not only on reads, but we could just, like, go around our buildings and just be like, zap. And, like, brand. <laughs> If any of you have seen that documentary, The Vow, on HBO, we won't get into that type of branding. (laughs) What else do we have on there? Um, Oh, here's an iron sign. Um, So it's one of those pieces for your home, like, you know, the live, laugh, love Mm -hmm. type of thing. And it's an iron sign. And it says, grow old along with me. The best is yet to be. In iron. In iron, yes. It's like okay. a sheet of iron. And then there's like calligraphy cutouts of grow old along with me. The best is yet to be. And I know that's supposed to be about the couple saying it to each other. But right now it's the situation going on in my read case. Grow old with me. <laughs> <laughs> we've still got some stuff we've got to get through together, friend. <laughs> I don't have time. The semester's almost over, so (laughs) I need you to grow old with me. Could iron also be the iron lung that will be necessary for anybody doing any nutcracker runs? Yes. Some messiahs. (laughs) (laughs) 
So, yeah, feel free to send us any iron-based gifts. You're paying shipping, so <laughs> go all out. <laughs> yes, uh, we'll happily take, um, you know, gifts, declarations of love, or florets of broccoli. Iron supplements would be great. Iron supplements? <laughs> Happy anniversary, Galit. Ugh, I love you. Happy anniversary. Founded by Logan Esterling, Reed Design is pushing the boundaries of oboe and English horn reed making. They take the knowledge they've collected from hundreds of reeds and, with the power of machine learning, derive patterns and trends that accurately predict the characteristics of finished reeds while early in the sorting process. The result is quality reeds with characteristics you can count on. Using their products will save you valuable time and let you get back to what you love, making music. Visit www.readdesign.io to learn more. That's R-E-E-D-E-S-I-G-N dot I-O. Chemical City Double Reads is a full-service double read shop specializing in the sale of instruments, cane, accessories, and sheet music. Double Read Dish listeners can enjoy free shipping with code DRDISH, all caps, no spaces. Visit them in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, or online at chemicalcityreads.com. We are over the moon thrilled to welcome to the podcast Nancy Belmont, Assistant Professor of Bassoon at Louisiana State University. Welcome, Nancy. Hi, Guy. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to finally be on this podcast. I've I've listened for a while and and I'm really excited. Oh my God, stop. You're making Jackie blush. (laughs) (laughs) Not me. I like it. (laughs) Nancy, will you tell us how you got started on the bassoon? Um, sure. Yeah. Well, so I started playing bassoon in middle school band and I'm that breed of unicorn that didn't play anything else before playing the bassoon, no other instruments. Um, I know that's not always the case for people, but no one in my family is a musician or musical at all. And in fact, you know, up until middle school, I was just like, oh, I really like to sing. You know, I sing along to Disney movies and (laughs) things like that. So I was all pumped for like that sixth grade um, elective sheet and I wanted wanted to go into chorus, into choir. Um, But my best friend was like, Nancy, you have to join band. My brother's in band and all the cool people are in band. (laughs) Right? Famous last words. Famous last words. Um, So I, I, you know, I was like, okay, that's, I'll I'll go ahead. She was one of the few people I knew going to my middle school. So it's like, okay, I'll have a friend. Um, And yeah, and the that's that's how things happened. I had a really wonderful middle school band director. Her name is Kathy Thompson. And she let us, you know, instead of just being like, okay, here's an instrument, play an instrument. She took the time to show us every instrument, um, let us try every instrument. And so, you know, we did a few weeks of that. And uh, I remember seeing the bassoon and being like, that looks really cool. <laughs> Um, and, um, and again, cause I didn't have a context of, of no one in my family's musical. They were just like, oh, that's that one from the movie Fantasia, you know, the, the Disney and the broomsticks. And I was like, oh, I know that. Um, but yeah, the, the, my band director then let us try, uh, let us write down our top three things that we liked and she would pick from that. So she didn't have a whole band full of flute players or saxophonists and things, something like that. 
And believe it or not, I was the only person in all of sixth grade to even write bassoon on their list. <laughs> Sad, <laughs> but and then that's how it happened. <laughs> that's actually a really good band retention strategy, right? To like mm-hmm. really thoroughly make sure that the kids are excited about what they're playing. <laughs> Eureka. <laughs> and now to this day, I don't remember if bassoon was even first or not. <laughs> it was just on there somewhere. I think I put um, French horn and percussion also on there. All good options. All good, right? <laughs> yes. So talk us through um, getting serious about the bassoon and the decision to pursue it in college and professionally. Yeah. So um, again, this going back to this band director that I had, um, she was really thoughtful about when kids showed signs that they wanted to be serious about things. And, um, you know, I kind of self-taught bassoon to myself for, you know, most of middle school uh, and she helped as much as she could, but um, was not a bassoonist. Most, most band directors are not. Um, And uh, I got to a point in eighth grade where she recommended a private teacher for me and um, where I grew up. I'm, I'm from Florida originally uh, north, about an hour north of the Tampa area. Um, That particular area, we didn't have any private teachers uh, close by. And she recommended someone that they were about 45 minutes to an hour away. Um, But my parents were really supportive and um, did that and started in eighth grade driving me that far every week. And my first bassoon teacher was, um, uh, he's in the IDRS scene, he does contraband. Some people might know him. Kevin Fuller um, is a lovely human being and really nurtured me early on um, and Wait, helped me I get. I think I met Kevin Fuller. Did you meet Kevin Fuller? Yes. He's very tall. <laughs> yes, he's very tall. Yeah, he's wonderful. And the, and the thing is, is I run into him all the time now and he's he's always so sweet, just as he was, you know, when I was 13. Um, but again, each one of the teachers that I had since from there, I, I only studied with Kevin for a year and a half, I think. And then he uh, was like, I think you should maybe go study with someone in the Florida orchestra. And, um, and, uh, and so from there, you know, I left Kevin and have been in touch with him ever since, but I, I, I studied with Maurizio Venturini, who was in the Florida orchestra at the time. And, um, and he was kind of the person then that took me from, um, oh, I really like playing bassoon to, um, you could consider bassoon being something that you pursue, you know, as uh, as a career. Um, and I did all state a couple times in high school, um, and but until I met him, hadn't really ever met anyone um, that modeled like what would being a musician look like. Um, the the only people that I knew related to music were band directors, the music teachers. Um, and for early on, that was something that I had thought um, of going into as well as being a band director. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I'd say, you know, mid the high, late high school was when that started happening. And because of the support that I had from both those great teachers and my parents, you know, I got more and more exposed to the world of uh, classical music and bassoon. I did the um, I did double read camp, which always explaining that to like non-music people is like, is hilarious. They're like double read camp. And I'm like, yeah, a bunch of sixth through 12th graders, like up to like 70 of them on a college campus, just playing like stars and stripes forever for oboes and bassoons in mass band. (laughs) It's a special group of kids. It's a special group of kids. Yeah. So, um, 
so that's kind of the journey. And then, and so the real seriousness came like going to school for music. And I, I did my undergrad um, in music performance at Florida State University. What happened after that? You graduated from Florida State. Yeah, Florida State, where I met Galit, actually. That's right. Galit was there. Left out the most important part. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we overlapped I a We bit. played on a recital together, too. We did. Yeah, there was um that that popped up on social media at some point. Like That's someone's funny. it was yeah, someone's recital and they like took a picture of the program. Um <laughs> but uh yeah, so I I did I did my undergrad there and I had started, you know, going to some summer festivals and and things like that. And when I was doing an undergrad, I again because thinking about what I had modeled for me of like what a career in music looked like. It went from like, Oh, I don't have to, I'm I'm, I'm not going to be a band director. Maybe I'll be, I, I'll audition for orchestra jobs. And that's, that's what I'll do. Cause you know, um, my high school teacher did that. And that was a lot of what, you know, I worked on in, in, in undergrad um, is learning excerpts and things like that. And, um, but uh, then came time for grad school. Um, and I ended up, I, I did my master's at Manhattan school of music uh, in New York City, and I studied with Frank Morelli there. Um, and part of that, when I was applying for grad schools, I knew I wanted to spend some time in like a big city, and that was something that was important to me. And um, and I was really fortunate for that this like this connection and the stars aligned that I ended up where I did because it was just the right place and the right time for me. Um, and I did um, I did just a they call it a classical masters at uh, MSM. MSM has a few different kinds of um, specialized masters that you can do. You can get one in like contemporary bassoon or orchestral bassoon, but I just did the middle of the bass- middle of the road bassoon um, there, and uh, that was a really interesting time for me because then my my eyes opened even more as to oh okay it's not just orchestra playing I could do I had this teacher that was um he's made this whole career out of like yeah he played in in you know New York City Opera but was a soloist and a teacher and a freelancer and all of this um and a chamber musician and um and that kind of made this light bulb go off in my head that I really like those things too and I I would love to try and pursue that a lot more um and so further from that I um you know, a master's degree goes by like that. You finish one year and then you're just like, oh God, what do I do next? <laughs> and mm-hmm. um, in the middle of that, I was sitting there and being like, okay, well, do I want to be in school more? Or do I want to, you know, because I moving to New York, uh, part of the fun thing is, is that I tried to start freelancing even when I was in school. They weren't good gigs, but they were things. <laughs> and um, so I was like, I want to stay here. I think, um, you know, I did the like, oh, I'll try to apply for New World, um, uh, you know. But I, uh, other than that, I also was like, oh, maybe I'll apply for it. a doctorate. Was not on my mind at all, by the way. <laughs> um, so I was like, you know, I'll apply for a performance diploma. Um, maybe I'll do the orchestral performance d- diploma just to be a little more well-rounded. Um, and I, I think uh, I applied for some other things. But one of the things that I did apply for, which I ended up being accepted to and and doing was um, this program called, uh, at the time it was called Ensemble ECJW. uh, It's now called Ensemble Connect. And what that is, it's like New World, it's a fellowship program. um, But instead of for orchestral performance, it's for, um, 
it's basically meant to to train the 21st century musician. And so it's a it's a chamber music based uh, fellowship program that uh, is also uh, focused on teaching artistry and entrepreneurship. And so that's a two year program that um, immediately after my master's, I ended up doing while still kind of freelancing and, and whatnot. But it um, that, you know, things becoming more and more formative. That was the big like, aha, like this is, this is that, because it then had that really nice balance of like chamber music being the, the thing that really resonated with me. Um, it's where I started playing, um, a lot more contemporary music, which I wasn't exposed to that much in school. And it's, it's now has become a huge part of what I do professionally. Mm -hmm. Um, and it also introduced me, uh, you know, I had done a little bit of teaching here and there, but just uh, not only teaching artistry and going into public schools and, and speaking, but just teaching in general and how um, teaching could be a formative part of, um, of or an integral part of my career, rather. Um, so, yeah, that was two more years of, of things. And then rather than being uh, like, OK, I'm going to deep dive into the world again, I was I was freelancing. I was regularly doing things, but then. Then I was like, okay, I like, maybe, maybe I will do a doctorate. Like I, I like teaching and, and I'll have that there as an option, you know? Um, and so I, I did my doctorate at um, Stony Brook University, um, where I again studied with Frank Borelli, who I had studied with for my master's um, and did that over the course of the next five years while working and freelancing in New York. And so that, that's kind of the, the, um, the arc of my training. Um, before we dive into your professional life, um, you were the second place winner of the July Fox competition in, was it 2016? Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, I would love to hear a bit about that experience. That's a huge accomplishment, um, but also um, to be a little controversial, Americans don't tend to dominate that particular scene. Um, and so I'm interested in, you know, your experience and your preparation and what you learned and talk to us about that a little bit, maybe. Yeah. Um, preparing for the July competition was one of the more intense experiences I've ever gone through. And I think, <clears throat> excuse me, I pushed myself, um, more than I think I ever had during that time. Um, you know, I just, I am uh, someone that has been throughout my life, like a, a voracious opportunity grabber. And I'm like, I'm always, I, I, I'm an avid Googler. I'm always just like, what's, what's open? What can I do? What can I try? Um, and, you know, at the time I saw, I had, I had um, applied to one gelée before that, just to put that out there. I, I applied for the 2014 uh, July competition. And that was a good learning experience for that. Um, because it, it taught me a lot about, you know, okay, I thought that was a pretty good recording. Um, but maybe I need to like prepare at an even higher level. And so for leading up to that, um, you know, this isn't everyone's experience, but I can talk about mine. I land very thoroughly how early I wanted to know that rep, not just before like, you know, a, a recording deadline being in March or something. Um, okay. I need to know it by March, but like you need to play that on a recital by November. Um, 
and then let it rest and then come back to it um, with fresh eyes, with fresh ears, um, and maybe at an even deeper level. Um, because for that competition, I mean, rep varies from year to year, but it's it's there's usually something fairly difficult on it, if not a lot of it fairly difficult. And that year was no exception, I remember. Um, the Isang Yoon monologue, um, the Crusel Concertino, the Schumann Fantasy Stück, and the, what else? The Dard, one of the Dard sonatas. Um, but yeah, so the one that goes. I remember because that that's the first time I heard you're playing, and I was like blown away. I, I specifically <laughs> remember that fast Dard movement. Being so that, that one where you have no time to breathe yeah like, in the entire page yeah mm-hmm. well so you know again like I dove all into this like thinking like okay well I'm in the middle I'm doing a DMA right now and so I'm gonna do this all on a recital at the end of November and then I went I went you know I have to write a a, a theory paper about something I'm gonna analyze Dard I'm gonna analyze that piece um for this and um and I think that like deep level of preparation was such a good thing because then, like I said, I got to take some time and I listened to my performance recording from that November recital that I gave. And I was like, that wasn't ready. <laughs> well, at least, it, you know, to a level of competition, uh, it was, you know, it was on my school recital. And then um, so fast forward to I'm still actively practicing some things. I took some time off over the holidays, but um, I think, yeah, my recordings were made in in March and um and so i spent a good amount of time still working on these things taking my time practicing things slowly listening to a whole bunch of recordings um and getting to a place where not only did i feel like it was technically there but i had explored like all facets of what i musically wanted to say because i think you know coming back to what you guys were talking about about you know Americans not traditionally dominating that. Like, what are the, you know, Europeans are used to, you know, they're probably European listeners are in, on here. They, um, they do competitions a lot more than us, I mm-hmm. think sometimes. Um, and there's a different mindset, I think, to competition playing sometimes than the, I just have to get this all exactly right um, mindset that we sometimes get with orchestral auditions playing um that's not to say i think the people that do win orchestra auditions are incredibly musical players and and it's there but that's the thing i think that's sometimes missing um for people who are wanting to seriously pursue uh competitions is to not only play it well but say something with it while you're doing it yeah so then there was, you know, the same kind of like break between I sent in my recordings. I was like, we'll see what happens. Um, and then you get like a, they announce it in end of May or something. And then it depends on when IDRS is. So I remember there was a then very intense third round of preparation of that from when they announced the the finalists for it to when the conference took place, which I think was just like in early July that year. It changes every summer, but Yeah. Um, I remember though, that was, you know, I have a few performances and things that stick out in my brain as like, that was really cool. Um, and that one, I just remember being like, oh my gosh, like, what am I doing here? (laughs) But, um, but not in a bad way, not in a, like, I don't think I deserve it way, but in a, in, in a, you know, like I have dreamed of doing this. I applied once and it didn't happen. And, um, 
yeah, it felt really cool. I had, um, you know, there are record, there are videos, I think that float around the internet still like, or at least on the IDRS website from that. And I think once since then I've watched it, I'm, I have a hard time watching myself, like listening, to myself. but I've watched it once. And actually, you know, the longer time goes on, sometimes you look on yourself with kinder eyes and things. Cause mm-hmm. you know, it was a good performance. Um, there, yeah, I can remember getting off stage and being like, <clears throat> like about a couple of things. Um, but I just remember when I did finally watch it and listen to it, like laughing because I could tell what was going on in my mind. <laughs> like there's one place where I like turn a page and smile or something. And it looks like, oh, she's really happy. But in my mind, I'm like, okay, here we go. We're going to smile. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So you are doing your doctorate at Stony Brook. Mm-hmm. How did you make it to... Louisiana State University. So I finished up my doctorate. And I think even before I finished my doctorate, um, I had started teaching both privately in New York, um, and then uh, adjunct teaching at some uh, colleges and, um, and schools in the in the wider area. And so um, I think my teaching started with younger students, I had a, a studio of people at a school called special music school in New York, which is an art school. Um, and then I got a position uh, a few years later at the laundry school of music, um, which was a bit of a commute. Uh, um, it's in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Uh, and, and, um, and so that was my real first like teaching gig. Um, and I had, I also taught at Malloy university um, in uh, Long Island or Malloy college rather. And, um, and so, yeah, I had been doing those things even before I finished my doctorate. And it was after I finally finished the doctorate um, that I considered like, okay, well, what do, what do I want to do with this? Um, and, and where do I want to go with this? Um, because I liked some of the things that I was doing freelancing. Um, but I knew I wanted to have teaching as a bigger part of what I did also, um, And so, yeah, I had, um, I was just kind of keeping my eye on some things that were opening up as, as they came up, um, you know, put in a few applications for things here and there. And, and the big, uh, unspoken thing right now is I finished my doctorate in 2019 and then COVID. Um, and so there wasn't a lot happening there. So this was actually one of the first things that came up for me, um, like, coming out of the pandemic, um, or, you know, we're in the pandemic still, but, um, come, coming back to doing more work, um, was, was fine. Was this, this job coming up. And I remember being like, huh, um, that's somewhere that I could see myself being. And, um, yeah, that whole process was a whirlwind. Like, <laughs> um, I like doing a, I had done one, um, like on campus kind of day, like for a, for a teaching job before, but, uh, but this one was, was, uh, I had just had COVID like two weeks before I oh. went down to LSU. <laughs> oh, no. so that was, that was a time. You really strike me as a person who takes in a good way, takes herself seriously, like takes your ambitions and desires seriously. And I think that's actually a really rare quality, um, Oh, some, someday I would love to be able to do that or some, maybe someday I'll, I'll be good enough for that, but you really, um, believe you can, and then you do. Um, and 
I also noticed when you talked about your bassoon upbringing, you took your mentors seriously and you took the example that they were setting for you seriously. And I would love to hear your advice for um, students and young professionals who maybe don't take their desires as seriously. Do you know what I mean? It like you just know you can and then you do it. Like you have that mindset. Yeah. And I think, I think it's, it's pretty difficult to get there sometimes. Yeah. And, and especially because, you know, it's, it's that you you mentioned that like you belief that you can. um, And I don't think for some people that comes more naturally than others. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that I'm someone that like inherently goes like, yeah, I can do that. Like that's going to work for me, but it's, it's this kind of training of, of mental mindset of like, um, kind of, I don't know, at least seeing the opportunity and seeing the possibility of it. Um, you know, um, there's this saying in improv comedy, like, you know, yes. And, uh, idea, which means that, you know, someone says something and even if it's absolutely ludicrous, like you just take it and go with it rather than shooting it down. And I think, so coming back to what you're saying about advice for, for, um, students and, and people, I think that is inherently kind of how I, um, have thought about pursuing opportunities and pursuing and furthering what I'm doing in my career and, and what I would, um, advise students to do as well um it's it's something that I've lived by as a performer you know even if it scares you or if you think that it's a long shot you know try it and not just like oh I'm gonna dip my toe in and try like try it to the absolute best of your ability like yeah I think the difference Yeah. yeah you're like I'm gonna try it and then you really really go for it yeah because if you have it in your mind that I'm going to try it, but I have no chance. Like you're giving, you're, you're manifesting that a little bit in your, in your head for, and, and so it's the same kind of thing where it's just like, you know, I want to play that piece, but like, gosh, that's way too hard. I, I could never play that. It's well, how do you, how do any of us advise students to go into that? We'll like take the smallest bit um, and then work outwards from there. Like there might be something, okay. It's something that seems impossible. You can find a manageable chunk from it and then try and grow from there. And, um, and I think the same way, again, like coming back to just opportunities, like, you don't, you know, I, how did I get to uh, somewhere like LSU? It's, you know, I didn't just, you know, roll out of school and go, okay, I want to apply for this job. I, I think both in short term goals and in long term goals. Um, And, in pursuing these things, it's not just jumping into them wholehearted, but find thinking about the goals and setting them. I am an avid list maker and an avid goal setter. And, um, and I think that's, um, no goal is too absurd. Um, I, because then you find the steps to work backwards from that, like, you know, okay, I want to be, you know, some things could be, I I could make a really long shot idea from now too, but, um, but then you you could at least try and trace steps back from that afterwards on, on how to go and do that. Could we hear a little bit about city of tomorrow? Yes. City of tomorrow. That's some of my favorite people. 
Um, the City of Tomorrow is a, a new music wind quintet. So we are dedicated to the uh, performance and expansion of the wind quintet repertoire. Um, I've been in the City of Tomorrow, uh, though not an original member, I've been in the City of Tomorrow since 2015, which is already seven years, which is crazy. Um, but um, yeah, we're such an eclectically wonderful group of human beings. It's my favorite project. And we get together um, a few times a year and do tours. We came up with an album um, just not this past summer, but the summer before called Blow um, that featured some of the pieces that we had been regularly performing for years. Um, and what I love about it is that like, you know, the wind quintet as a genre, it's not inherently like old. You, a lot of our pieces are on the newer side, like our standards quote, I'm doing air, air quotes right now. Our <laughs> standards are like Barber and Hindemith. And like, so it's, it's not like we're dealing with having to like, you know, get people, claw people out of playing music from, you know, the classical era or anything like that. But it's still like we've made like a lot of wing quintets have made this box of like, well, this is our, this is our stuff now. And um, so we've, you know, the genesis of the group when the group started was, um, you know, going into school libraries and finding the wing quintets that were like commissioned in the seventies and eighties that like got one performance and then were never played again mm. or were ra rarely played again. Mm -hmm. Um, and kind of breathing new life into these works. And so, you know, in the, um, previously mentioned album that we have shameless plug, um, that came out it, um, one of the pieces on it is, uh, this work that, the group has been playing for 10 years. They, they won fish off. You know, I wasn't in there at the time, but uh, with this piece, um, it's a piece by Franco Donatoni called blow. Um, very hard, very complex, but really cool. Um, and believe it or not, it was written in the 1980s and the city of tomorrow gave the North American premiere of it in 2010. Oh. Yeah. So, um, so it's combination. We do things like a combination of that. And then on that album was, um, a commission of ours we also commission and that's an important part of what we do um uh by uh hannah lash i think they they go by hand lash now um is uh uh it's called leander and hero and we won a uh chamber music america class one commissioning grant to um for this piece and it's a beautiful like mammoth 40 minute work for wind quintet um all centered around the idea of um climate change and um but of uh, telling the, the story with these two birds that are in love and how they like you know climate change has displaced them um that's a wonderful and then uh, we also have uh this esopeka salon and one quintet on there um no rarely played because it has like two minutes of contra doubling at the end but it is one <laughs> right <Pass. laughs> <Travel> <laughs> it's really cool though like everyone should go take a listen like well because so it's called memoria and the last two minutes like he felt like he really needed to use contra i guess because it's um um it's a chorale in memoriam to luciana barrio um so anyways yeah <laughs> contra um but the as I said, the city of tomorrow is, um, we're out there doing things, still doing commissions. One of our, uh, interesting projects coming up for next season is that we, uh, uh, are commissioning George Lewis to write us a piece for, uh, wind quintet and electronics. So look out for that. Okay. 
So switching gears, let's talk about you as a teacher. When you look at the musical climate in the United States right now, what are some skills that you feel that young musicians should look to develop in their own musicianship, scholarship, um, ambitions? Yeah, I think um, regardless of anything, one of the major points of my teaching is um, not only developing skills, but um, encouraging curiosity um, and creativity in what you're doing. And it's it's not just an environment. Um, studying music is not just an environment where you're a technician and learning your craft, but you're learning how to not only teach yourself for the rest of your life, because, you know, as we all know, when we leave school, you're not done. You don't just like come out of the oven and then it's just like, okay, you're a fully formed musician. Like, you know, you're still like actively learning. You're still, you know, growing. And that's like, could be really frustrating, but it's, it's also really beautiful too. I remember just as a small tangent, um, being frustrated about something when I was in doing my master's and like being like, ah, Mr. Riley, like, when do I never have to, when do I not have to think about this anymore? And he's just like, Nancy, I'm 60 something years old. And I still think about that every day. Mm -hmm. And again, you could turn that negative and be like, oh, that's so frustrating. But like, yeah, we're all there. We're all doing it. Um, But back to, you know, what skills for today for students, I, besides like creativity, curiosity about things, um, I think flexibility um, you know, not just being, you know, entering a degree being like, I want to play orchestra music or even entering a degree being like, I just want to make weird sounds um, being yes, cultivate those things, be curious about them, but try and explore as much as you can. There's so much out there now and so much access to everything that they, there's um, reason why you can't um become super knowledgeable in, in a whole range of things. And that's not only going to make you a more, you know, speaking from like the professional side of things, a more marketable musician, but it's going to make you a well, more well-rounded musician. It's, mm-hmm. you know, the more that you can take the skills that you learn um, to uh, play Mozart and, and how we talk about phrasing and apply them just as wholeheartedly to a piece that was written yesterday, um, that's where I want my students to be. And that's where I want, I, I think that students should be in general. Um, and so as a part of that, like, yes, I think students should be. Um, and I think that it's moving there slowly um, is expanding repertoires to reflect that in what we're teaching um, and, and what students are going out there and playing in recitals, in auditions, in, in everything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, switching gears a little bit, you are a light singer performing artist. Can we hear a bit about the bassoon you play and how it found its way to you? My bassoon. Yeah, sure. I got my bassoon in um, 2019. Um, it is a light singer model one. Um, light singer has a model one and model two professional instrument. And um, my particular instrument, um, I bought following the Tampa IDRS. It was actually one of the, the floor models <laughs> there. Um, but I had, um, I had gotten to play it a little bit beforehand. Um, and, uh, I, 
the idea was there. The 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 thoughts were were uh, in my brain that I was going to try and get another instrument. But again, going back to the, I guess thinking on on my personality now, when I go into something, it's like, you know, all in. And so when I was looking for bassoons, I was like, okay, I'm going to try everything. I got two heckles on trial. I've got a Puchner. I've got a Walter. I've got a this. And I, cause I really wanted to know, I knew, you know, I studied with Mr. Morella and he was already playing a light singer bassoon. And I had a few friends that were, uh, were playing them at the time already. And so I knew that would be a really, um, simple answer, um, to go do, but I wanted to make sure that it was the right one for me. Um, so yeah, IDRS 2019 for me was a lot of like, let me take this bassoon. Let me take this bassoon. Um, and, uh, I left with, uh, you know, I tried a whole bunch of things and I left with that light singer and, um, a heckle. Um, I think it was a nine. Um, and then I had those for a couple of weeks where I did some really more intense playing and thinking and, um, the actual purchase ended up being um, a little later because then I sent it back to um, Stefan Leitzinger and he did some um, adjustments on it for me. Um, but yeah, that process was an interesting one. And the process of breaking in an instrument was actually something interesting for me because I had never played on a brand new bassoon before. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. So that was nice because prior to my Leitzinger, um, I played on a, a 601, a Fox 601 for years. Um, lovely instrument. Um, but uh yeah, the um, kind of growing pains of like, you know, an instrument open, opening up, things shift as it, so you're seeing your repair man a little more than you, than at least for me, than I regularly did, just getting things to seal. Um, and for me, a large part of my breaking in process was during COVID then. So it's like people didn't have to hear it. It's a blessing um, in disguise. A little bit, a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I've, you know, I've had it for three years now and I, I'm, like over this past year have really just gotten to the place now where I'm feeling like, Oh yeah, this feels good. This is nice. And the, what I really love about my instrument is that it's, um, Oh man, <laughs> my, um, a lot of my philosophy in playing and teaching is, is about sound and like trying to just get the most warm and resonant sound possible. Um, and so this bassoon felt like a really good match, like the Harry Potter finding your wand thing, um, because it just it felt like really easy to sing into and not have to like work so hard to find this resonance in in particular notes. And oh, there's a note here. It felt really even. It felt really um, it felt right. Yeah. Can I ask you about your relationship to performance anxiety? Um, I really do love your playing and I'm trying not to sound like a butt kisser. Um, but I really, Galit can contest. I, separate from speaking to you, I genuinely love your playing. And when I listen to you play, it is imbibed with a conviction and to watch you play is very dynamic. Um, and mostly I've seen you play in other high stakes places where there's a bunch of other bassoonists in the room when I'm my most likely to crawl back into my shell or feel very uncomfortable or vulnerable. And so, yeah, I'd love to hear your approach to being on stage because it's something I I really admire about you as an artist. Well, thank you for that. That's, I mean, (laughs) I had a hard time taking compliments. So thank you. Um, (laughs) 
but uh it's it's yeah it's it's um performance anxiety is something that i could we could do a whole podcast on you could probably multiple times right and talk about how people work through that um and um you know sometimes it's funny when people find people that uh they think are like oh tell me how you're doing that like blah blah blah. i think sometimes it comes from a place of like they have to work through it a bunch because um I have struggled a lot over my musical career um, early on, um, you know, even, the, you know, leading up through these major events that you're talking about with um, performance anxiety and even, you know, in the, the imposter syndrome, you know, that kind of thing up, up to here. Um, and um, I don't think either of those things are something that you can overcome, like it, you can't flip a switch and, and turn it off. It's something you learn to mitigate and manage. Um, and for me, you know, being on stage, I've had to kind of retrain my mindset um, about performing. Um, and over the years, then it's it's gotten a little easier. It's gotten a lot easier. Um, but it was a long journey up until that. And so for me, the mindset thing was just really trying to separate um, my ego my and not ego being the like ha oh, ha me but like the the idea of ego the self um out of uh out of performing out of um you know it's not that i'm going in front of this room of bassoonists to show them how good of a bassoonist i am but to um instead share with them how much i really like am excited about and love this music that i'm about to play for them um and in doing that Sometimes it feels great. And then sometimes in doing that, it's you feel a little bit like you're putting on a character. Um, but I think either of those is okay because we're not always going to be in a place where we feel 100% about what we're doing. Um, and so, yeah, sometimes it's like, here I go, I'm singing to everyone. And sometimes it's like I'm writing a character word on top of, um, you know, the piece of music that I'm that I'm going to do. I know I definitely did that during July. I had my like, you know, little little notes all over the place of like what what I'm a stage actor right now and what character am I going to give through my music? Um, but yeah, serving the music, I think, is, is, is kind of usually what I come back to. Um, I am in. I think I'm an overly excitable person and um, I get really excited about the things that I like and the things that I'm into. And so I'm really into music <laughs> and I, and, and not just like, Oh yeah, I like music, but like, I'm really into like, how can I take this phrase and, and turn it into something that's like song into something that's like, um, has a meaning has, has an impact. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I think going the idea of uh, having those characters doing those things, you know, and then there's little things along the way, like, okay, we actually sometimes do for when we get anxious, have physical things that manifest and how do we get over? I'm having a hard time breathing right now and, and, or, or I'm getting, you know, really shaky. Um, and I've, I've noticed though, for me over the years that those physical things were a much bigger part of it um, early on and the longer that I was, I did things, the more I just put myself in, in performing situations. And the more I tried to just separate what I thought other people would think about what I'm doing from it, um, the better it became. 
Uh, I don't know if it would be a, a, an interesting tangent here to say, but like, um, you know, I, in addition to you, know, bassoon was the first thing that I played. Um, but I am one of those people that like to do what I like to do. And so when I was in high school, um, I got to finally get my singing in and I did musical theater on, um, <laughs> and uh I uh I always found it really interesting when I did that because in high school even for bassoon I had all these people like starting to say like oh you're good at bassoon are you going to go to school for bassoon are you going to do that and um so playing bassoon had started to make me very nervous um because yeah. I felt like I was I was um having to live up to this expectation you had eyes on you I yeah. had eyes on me I went to go do like Peter Pan or like a Christmas Carol, like on stage. And it was just a pleasant surprise. Oh, she can sing. Like, and so it was just, it took that um, pressure off of it and it was fun. And, um, and yeah, I, I try and think about that a lot when, as, as, you know, a professional and adult now, it's just like, how do we get back to that place or how do I channel that? Because mm. yeah, it was something that I, that, that was fun. And even though I'm doing these things as a professional now, like I have to remember that it's still something I like to do. It's something that's fun. Yeah. yeah. Will you sing something for us? No. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I was just talking with, um, uh, you know, I have some projects coming up and I'm in the middle of um, trying to, to get an album going and there's some commissions there with it. And a friend of mine is, is, I'm working with her to write me a piece and we were kind of talking about these things and our philosophies of what we like about sound and um, music and how I love song. I like thinking about the bassoon as me singing through it. Um, and then I told her my background about singing and she was just like, will you sing in my piece? I was like, I won't say no because yes. And, but let's, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, because again, like talk about expectations and things like singing for me turned into one of those things where it was like, it was so great when I was younger. Now I'm a professional and I know professional singers. And I'm right. like, why? who would people, who would want to hear me sing? <laughs> it's not a yes and it's a no but. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a yes. Well, <laughs> you make me. <laughs> so. We already got your wonderful advice. Um, I'd love to end the interview by asking for you to share a memory, a favorite memory from a past performance. Hmm. So I think one that stands out in my head, and I think it's just because it was really special, like meaningful, is um, one, the first time that I did a full concert cycle, um, with Orpheus Chamber Orchestra, um, was, I was so excited because I, you know, I studied with, uh, with Mr. Morelli and he plays there and I got to play with him. Um, but I remember, uh, well, first it was an incredibly amazing musical experience because conductorless chamber orchestra is, is so empowering, so great to like just play orchestral rep like chamber music and and make musical decisions with everyone but um that particular program we were doing um uh, I think the only thing I was playing on the program was second bassoon on Mozart clarinet concerto um Martin Frost was playing clarinet and it was just exquisite playing he was playing basset clarinet and oh. um but I remember being you know backstage and and our, one of our concerts of several was at Carnegie Hall and at that time I had done my Ensemble Connect fellowship or I think was currently in it or had just finished it. 
and had played a lot like you know, part of that fellowship is you play in Wild Recital Hall at Carnegie and we did concerts in St. Kell Hall, but I had never played in the big hall in Stern Auditorium, the part that everyone, like when they think of Carnegie Hall, it's there. And so I remember being in the wings, like getting ready, Orpheus walks all out together, um, like a chamber group. And um, I'm standing there and I, um, I think Mr. Morelli had said something about like, oh, but you played. And I was like, oh, I've never played here. Um, I've never played here before, though, in this hall. And there was just like a really special moment that was like really meaningful. And and um, I guess I'll always remember that one. But I do have a runner up for this one, though, because I was thinking about it because it's not as like profoundly meaningful to me, but just like was like as a fangirl thing, really fun um, was that. At the end of uh, undergrad, I was subbed in the Orlando Phil a lot, and I got to play at the opening of Harry Potter World, um, and John Williams was conducting, and I just remember being there like, <gasps> <laughs> like all the actors, it was like, thing. yeah, it was like the, the, the opening opening, and so they had like the whole cast of the movies there and everything, and I just remember being like, you know, a college senior playing like contra bassoon, like I took the FSU contra bassoon to Orlando to go to. Yeah. Oh, Nancy, this was so wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us. We had such a wonderful time getting to know you and asking you all sorts of personal questions. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you again for having me. Like I said at the beginning, like I I listened and this is just so fun and you guys are wonderful. So and no, you're wonderful. You're wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, thank you for joining us for that episode and for the last six years. Y'all are the best. Please grow old with us. The best is yet to be. And <laughs> follow us on social media, rate and review on iTunes. Uh, check out all our welcome and uh, join us on the 15th for our next episode. Glee, who we're going to be talking with. We have a wonderful episode with Leslie Odom, associate professor of oboe at the University of Florida. And as always, we have the best time with Leslie. So we can't wait to share that one with you. Jackie, we got to end this nerd parade. Go consume iron supplements. And broccoli. <laughs> <laughs>